Hello, you're listening to The Booking Club, the podcast that brings you today's leading authors and commentators from a table at their favorite places to eat and drink. I'm your host, Jack Haldane. On this episode, I'm going to be speaking to author David Swift about his latest book, The Identity Myth. been three years really hasn't it since yeah. we were last here about david almost, in, in yeah. toulouse lautrec absolutely this was the restaurant we met at to speak about your first book back in 2019 the day after if i'm not mistaken the 2019 british general election here we are on the eve of another <laughs> leadership contest and needless to say so much has happened since then but i think it's worth just catching up with one another how how have you been since since 2019 yeah you know personally pretty well Personally, I really can't complain. You know, the greatest inconvenience to me um, was really, in many cases, not being able to go to the pub as often as I'd like. Um, I got married in the interim, and we had to have free marriages rather than just or oh, free weddings. Sorry, I did not feed you. Free weddings to the same person. Let me extend a fist oh, for nice a fist bump because I too got married in the interim twice. Oh, yeah. you were, yeah. <laughs> Presumably the same thing, right? Not two different yeah, women yeah. with the same, uh, same problem. You had one more stressful event to organise over myself, but yes, yeah. yeah, getting married during the pandemic and then having to do it all again to make up for lost time and absent people. Absolutely. Um, but again, so massively inconvenient. In the end, not as sort of cataclysmically terrifying as it may have seemed at first. Certainly, I think people roughly of our generation... It could have been much worse, right? I was thinking, imagine being in university, you know, imagine being a school leaver when all that happened. And Thought about this a lot, yeah. You know, imagine being in the early 20s or something and, and suddenly you just got to stay in for two years. Or, of course, having kids yourself, right? I mean, oh, having kids of any age during that time. Being a kid in school, doing GCSEs or A-levels. So in some ways, quite, you know, unusually, in, uh, I think people in the sort of, you know, I don't know, late 20s, early 30s, who've had a rough time, but could have been worse, you know, to be enough age during the pandemic. So not that bad for me personally. Strange times, though, as you say, these two meetings almost bookending a really bizarre, what, two years, ten months, or almost three years. Whereby, yeah, as the dust settled on that election, it seemed to so many extents that this is it, right? Okay, Boris Johnson's won this crushing majority. He's going to get Brexit done, whatever that means. He will at least uh, presume to carry out his whole levelling up idea, whatever the hell that would involve, but at least he'll have a ma majority of the mandate to do it. So yeah, we'll have Boris Johnson as PM for ages. Um, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff he and Dominic Cummings were talking about, about, you know, moderate conservatism and red wall conservatism, all the rest of it might be put into practice or maybe put to the test or whatever. Mm. And then within a few months after that, the world turns upside down. This brings us on to the major theme of your book, The Identity Myth, which was published, I believe, February of this year. When I first read the book's title, I thought to myself, myth, really? Is this book trying to dismantle identity politics completely or is it going to be one that acknowledges identity but we have to see it differently and understand it differently? Now, since the last general election, I've certainly noticed the right carving up working class identity mm -hmm. for its own ends. Yeah. Maybe that's a good place to start. Absolutely. So I think the reason it's called the identity myth is that so much of what we consider to be identity politics is sort of predicated on the idea that there is a sort of direct connection between people's um, sort of subjective material circumstances, whatever they might be, right? Income, educational background, 
wealth, the color of their skin, sexuality, the biological sex, whatever. And then this idea of uh, identity, which is quite a nebulous and complicated thing, but it's meant to be a sort of cultural, political, it's quite a hard thing to tie down. And unfortunately, this is, uh, well, I mean, both the right and the, and, and the left do it, absolutely. So we've heard a lot in the past couple of years in both the UK, in the US, in various places about the so-called white working class. It's particularly interesting in the USA because traditionally Americans would never say working class, right? They'd always say middle class as a sort of a code for working class. But you have people like Donald Trump, uh, Joss Hawley, uh, who's a senator in the US, uh, Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, who all specifically now talk about the working class. And of course in the UK as well, right? Boris Johnson and people like that even would say, you know, the conservatives are the parties of the working class now. And again, when they, when they say this, they talk about a particular kind of person with particular kinds of beliefs. They don't talk about a working class person who's very pro-EU, for example. Um, they tend to assume that all working class people are, you know, people in the north, white people, former industrial workers, etc. But unfortunately, the left has its own version of this as well, both with class. Um, I mean, you can see a lot about people from Liverpool, right? So obviously, I'm from Liverpool. And Liverpool is a consistently Labour-voting left-wing city. I think it's definitely become more left-wing in a cultural sense in the past few years than it ever used to be. But even then, you have this whole idea, you know, Scousers never read the sun, right? I'm sure you've seen that on Twitter or this phrase go around. It used to be a song by Billy Bragg, in fact. I didn't know that. Oh, indeed, yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, like most Billy Bragg songs, he didn't necessarily chart particularly well, but whatever. So you have this whole idea that this idea of the Scouser who hates the sun, who uh, doesn't like the monarchy so much either, who's pretty uh, anti-British or English nationalism. And, okay, fair enough, that absolutely describes a lot of people in Liverpool. But again, the problem is that you have this identity, in this case, the mythical left-wing scouser, which is really distracting from the idea of, okay, what might people in Liverpool need or want, you know, in terms of improving their lives. So on both the left and the right, we have this political cultural caricature of say working class people or black people or students or young people or indeed trans people which is not necessarily representative of I don't know, the average person if you like within that particular identity group and doesn't really help anyone do anything apart from maybe get themselves on telly or advance their own political project. We're facing high inflation, a cost of living crisis, an ongoing war that threatens to be nuclear every other week. We have the ongoing threat of climate change. So where in the midst of all of this do you see the role for identity? So a point I make in the, the book, and in fact, I may have actually made this last time I was on your podcast. I hope I'm not making it again. Um, back with the in the 1960s at General Motors factory in Detroit, the original origin of this concept of intersectionality, men could only work on the factory floor. Women couldn't work on the floor. They had to work in the office. And black people, informally, because it would have been illegal at the time in the late 60s, but informally, black people were only allowed to work on the factory floor. They weren't allowed to work in the office. So that meant that black women couldn't work anywhere, right? They literally couldn't get a job anywhere in that factory. But that was specifically about their literal reality of being both women and black, right? They couldn't say, "Ah, I may look black to you, but I actually identify with white concepts like punctual timekeeping in the nuclear family or whatever so hence give me a job so i think there's that difference between the material realities of people's lives and this idea of identity which is obviously spurious nonsense right the idea that black people are less interested in the written word or the nuclear family is actually quite a you know eurocentric discourse in itself 
Now, identity certainly can be useful in many ways. If you look at, say, the Black Panthers or Black is Beautiful movement or uh, sort of gay pride movement in the 80s. But now I think it's because identity can be so, you know, it's so subjective, it's so superficial, it's something that various people can claim even if really they have no right to that identity. We've seen it with sort of um, people trying to pass as black, like Rachel DeLiso, for example. A much more common thing is people trying to pretend they are more working class than they are, or indeed that they are posher than they are. That happens as well. Having said all that, I think we need to look at the potentials of identity in a good way. So something I read a few years ago in the research for this book, The Identity Myth, was an essay by uh, Wes Yang or Wesley Yang, who's an American writer. And he was talking about Asian Americans and how Asian Americans have difficulties in all kinds of different ways because generally they do perform pretty well on exams and standardized tests, etc. Maybe not as well as the sort of quite racist stereotype says that they do, right? Which they also suffer from. It's always like because people assume that they're going to be great at maths and science and do well at standardized tests, they set higher standards for them. But where they often fall down is they lack a lot of the sort of connections and uh, cultural capital and social understanding that kids from all different kinds of backgrounds might have. So whilst lots of Asian kids will do pretty well at getting into programs at Harvard and Yale and whatnot, actually, if you then look at who goes on to the best post, uh, sorry, postgraduate programs, who goes on to get the best jobs in, in things like tech or academia or various things, then actually disproportionately Asian kids are underrepresented compared to how well they do when getting into top universities. And I thought there's a really interesting parallel there with uh, working class kids in the UK, right? Because so many working class kids in the UK, white, black, Asian, whatever, if they're smart, if they come from families that really value hard work and all the rest of it, they could do well in their GCSEs and A-levels. And indeed, many of them do go on to top universities. But I wonder how many of them actually then go on to really rise to the top of various professions, be it academia or in the city, uh, in, in, say, culture or uh, the public sector or whatever interesting to see clearly even though lots of kids uh, certainly from ethnic minorities from uh, working class backgrounds do go on to top universities nowadays we're clearly not seeing them represented at the elite of politics uh, at the elite of academia in the legal profession etc etc and i believe it's much the same problem right they they can study hard they can do really well they can ace their exams they can go to university but of course that's not enough so again you might think you know the problems facing Asian American kids are very specific to them. I'm sure some of them are, especially the massive increase in violence against Asian Americans during the pandemic. Particular things affecting particular working class kids in the UK are specific to them, sure. But I think the more interesting identity thing here is the similarity between kids from different backgrounds, maybe thousands of miles away, who are often not assumed to have anything in common, right? Asian American kids and, I don't know, say white working class British kids, but actually in many ways face often the same problems in that they can do as well as, as, well as possible in exams. They can go to elite universities and yet, perhaps surprisingly, they often face you know, similar problems to each other. Suella Braverman said the other week at the Tory party conference that her dream was to have a front page of the Telegraph with a plane leaving for Rwanda. She called it her dream, her obsession. What have you made of some of the analyses of politicians such as Priti Patel and Suella Braverman, to name just two, to understand the psychology of somebody who, coming from an immigrant background, develops right-wing positions on things like immigration? And do you think that trying to dissect the psychology is itself problematic? Well, it's one that, I mean, 
you know, if you think of the psychology of the poor person who's probably always going to be poor but doesn't want to tax the rich just in case they become a millionaire, you know, I think maybe there might be a psychological thing there because there's so many people like that, we just don't bother to do so. You know, there's an old quip which is attributed to John Steinbeck. I don't know if John Steinbeck actually came up with it, but he said, communism will never catch on in America because Americans, poor Americans, don't see themselves as poor. They see themselves as temporarily embarrassed millionaires, right? And that's a, but again, people sort of accept that and, and, and sort of get around it and try to deal with it, but they don't think, but why is that? So we have a lot of the coverage of people like Priti Patel and more recently Suella Braverman. Some of the analysis I've seen I really don't like, which is talking about how, oh, well, you know, people who uh, came from East Africa, you know, g- largely Gujarati Indians who went to, you know, from Gujarat to Uganda and Kenya and then came to UK, often they were shop owners and da da da. No, I mean, that's complete nonsense. I don't think that really makes much sense because you will always find people from all different kinds of backgrounds economically and, and ethnically who have you know, right-wing views and sort of anti-immigrant views and authoritarian views. So I don't necessarily think that's a good frame of analysis. I think, you know, it's pretty possible and pretty easy for people from all different kinds of backgrounds to have various views. I think, obviously, there should be no contradiction where, um, you know, if you look at in the United States, for example, some of the biggest supporters of closed borders in the United States are Italian-Americans and Irish-Americans. And just because the same arguments that they make now against, say, you know, Guatemalans and Nicaraguans were made against their great-grandparents or, grand, you know, grand, great-great-grandparents doesn't matter at all, right? In fact, this was even in The Sopranos, right? One of the latest episodes of The Sopranos when they're on a lake and uh, one of them says, oh, yeah, my, my, my uh, father sneaked in through Canada. And then one of them goes, but they should build a wall now, right? And they go, amen to that, you know? So the fact that, you know, the the regime that allowed their grandparents to come in, they don't want to apply it to people now, it's, it's such an obvious thing to say. It's a bit of a cliche, right? So I don't think we should be shocked if people like Priti Patel or Suella Bravman want policies that, if applied to their parents or grandparents, you know, would have meant that they didn't come in. That's just the way politics works, right? Um, unfortunately. But uh, I think uh, we need to appreciate that not only people can have views which are unexpected, and yeah, I think definitely if I can think of at least one or two examples of high profile black British conservatives who I definitely think a lot of what motivates them maybe is that they just get so much abuse from different people. They think, you know what, I'm just going to lean into this identity then and we're going to become this, you know, ridiculous caricature. Well, who, who do you think in particular? Well, I mean, I would say Calvin Robinson, definitely 100%. You know, if you look at the state of him, um, you know, I, think, <laughs> I think if we had this perfect world where the amount of melanin or pigmentation in people's skin, we shouldn't deduce anything from their politics, then Calvin Robinson would have, I think, more just standard, you know, bog-standard cent- bog centre-right politics, actually, than he does. But because he gets so much abuse uh, for the apparent juxtaposition of, of his background and his views, it's, it causes him to lean into it, I think, in some ways. Having said that, of course, absolutely, if we have this idea that, say, quote-unquote, working-class people or black people or gay people or Asian people should be left-wing, in some ways, then definitely you're creating a career opportunity there for people who, you know, go the other way. I can certainly think of a few quote unquote work class people, northern people, etc., young people who, uh, you know, spend a lot of time on GB News, for example. And their only qualification for that, it seems to me, is that they are northern 
or, you know, quote unquote, working class or young and relatively attractive. And they're like, ho, 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 you know, I have these right wing views. And yet look at my demographics. Ha, ha, yeah. So, but that's, you know, this is a problem of people on the left for, for assuming that people with those demographics shouldn't have those views. I think both sides have just developed each other's worst habits. The crux of your book is to say that actually the more you look into identity, the less you see differences that are currently fueling this culture war and the more you see similarities. Now, that might sound very pleasing to the ear, but as you say, you're not pushing a universalist doctrine here. Yeah. And it's important to really nail exactly where you think the debate has gone wrong and where we could bring it to that would make sense to all sides of this. So Paul Gilroy, the famous uh, cultural theorist and sociologist, he himself has and always has had a sort of universalist humanist attitude. He's always been against racial essentialism. He wrote a book 20 years ago called Against Race. Or at least that, that was it. I think that was the British title in America. They had to call it something different because that would have been too controversial on the left for him. And in fact, yeah, if you read my book, The Identity, if I quote Paul Geroy a lot. Now, Paul Geroy's name has been invoked very often in the past couple of years since the murder of George Floyd by various people, such as Lewis Hamilton, for example, who you know put Paul Gerroy's Ain't No Black in the Union Jack on his recommended anti-racist reading list. But really, as far as I'm concerned, someone like Paul Gerroy, and I would say someone like Stuart Hall as well, you know, the, a famous cultural theorist, are very different from people like Ibra Max Kendi, you know, the American quote-unquote anti-racist author, in that their whole message has always been about humanism and to to an extent universalism they've definitely been against racial essentialism and they're very much focused on class however class may manifest itself and okay different for you know white and black people in different circumstances i think until recently i don't know maybe there was a an impetus for that on the left until recently and that could happen i think you know as i've said before my previous book a left for itself i think a lot of these things come about because many on the left have essentially given up on the possibility of real transformative change. They think, well, you know, we're not going to win in this regard in the economic sense. We're not going to massively shift public opinion on certain issues like the monarchy where, you know, that we completely disagree with. So we may as well just retreat to certain spheres and certain, I don't know, areas of activity, uh, you know, areas that we can control and that we might be able to win. Identitarian politics has almost become a consolation prize. In a sense, it's a response to declining growth. I mean, that's it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think certainly a huge cause of this is the reality of the fact that there are fewer and fewer middle class jobs, there are fewer and fewer dependable regular jobs, etc. Particularly, I would say the massive decline in, say, academic jobs or jobs in the media or jobs in politics. You do address this too, this gerrymandering of the term working class for middle class purposes. No, exactly, exactly. I mean, I think until I would say just before the 2019 general election in the UK, the line was from certain people on the left, how dare you say that quote-unquote working-class people are, you know, more against immigration than middle-class people or are more socially or culturally conservative than middle-class people? How dare you? I actually went to a comprehensive school at the bottom of a deep coal mine and actually we all love trans people and immigrants down there. Except, you know, it would descend into a sort of uh, four Yorkshireman type sketch of how people would go about how, how deprived their background was and how they still had lots of avocados and stuff. And that was ridiculous and unsustainable. I mean, maybe there was a, a nugget of a point there about the importance of heterogeneity and diversity amongst even apparently homogenous groups, of course, important. That became unsustainable with the 2019 election, I think, just in terms of the political results of it, right? So 
you had the, the the high priest of this was a guy called Joe Kennedy and his book Authentocrats, where he wrote about his childhood in Darlington until, of course, he left and went to Brighton as soon as he could. Um, and he spoke about how in Darlington they had this shop called Guru Boutique, which I think they may still have in Darlington. And how actually in Guru Boutique in Darlington you could buy incense and, you know, Che Guevara flags and all the rest of it and herbal tea and just talking about it, isn't it? I mean, what the hell does that mean, though? Because we had somewhere in Liverpool like that called Quiggins, uh, as any scouts listening will remember, got closed down. Peter Quiggins, the guy who founded it, went on to stand as a national front candidate for the local council, right? So he loved his joss sticks and his incense and his, uh, you know, hippie boutiques, but he was still a massive racist. Likewise, you can you can have somewhere like Guru Boutique in Darlington didn't stop the fact that it overwhelmingly voted for Brexit and for uh, Boris Johnson's Conservatives at the 2019 election. Now, since then, since that the Joe Kennedy, what I call exonerators argument, became unsustainable, they now have this idea of, oh, well, you know, these people aren't really working class. Instead, you know, very often they own their own home, right? Even if it is like a £80,000, you know, terraced house in a former pit village by Middlesbrough. They own their own home, so therefore they can't be working class. Actually, the real working class are people who have loads of university debt and who've done master's degrees in graphic design, whatever, and aren't using them. And yeah, I think, I mean, I've written about this for the likes of, you know, Tribune and Unheard and various places about how unsustainable and ridiculous this is and how definitely if the political results of the past few years have been different, this argument wouldn't be being made. I mean, there's a serious point somewhere about how in a deindustrializing society where obviously any kind of steady work is becoming less likely or less possible, where fewer and fewer people own property, clearly we need to reassess the economic bases of class, absolutely. But that definitely doesn't mean that we should just completely throw out the concept of working class and invent some entirely new concept of it. To really cast our minds back to the last general election, what should Labour do differently this time around? Their conference in Liverpool seemed to hit a lot of the right notes. A huge Union Jack in the background <laughs> singing God Save the King and talking largely about industry and mm. about energy security and all of those mainstream issues. I think there are certain basic things that need to be done and yet these things might be quite controversial in themselves and definitely won't be any guarantee of a great performance you know they are not sufficient i think they're necessary but not sufficient but even then they may not be sort of um, you know sufficient enough actually so the whole union jacket labor party conference is singing of god save the queen i mean bloody hell, i'm glad i you know wasn't there whatever i wouldn't necessarily it's very cheesy it's absolutely very cheesy but of course you know that's what i, mean, I don't know if you've met many people in the uk you know the average person but you know, plenty of people are pretty cheesy if you look at you know the favorite tv shows and films and songs and whatever um in many ways this has been a big problem with the left in the past few years you know the left is like a group of people who love the wire but we're trying to appeal to a nation of like mrs brown's boys watches and stuff like that right you know the problem is with the left that we're too cool in some ways that might not seem like accurate if you've, met, if you've seen well, it's interesting you, you mentioned the wire because yeah the left has been very keen on importing and absorbing a lot of american race politics yeah in some ways and i think in some ways this is the sort of internationalization of of global culture in many ways right mm. it's in, i mean i subscribe to all kinds of like american newspapers newsletters and vice versa in the UK and you'll see you know in the New York Times or the Atlantic we'll be discussing British TV programs like I May Destroy You or whatever and vice versa you know there really is this sort of international culture now amongst people of a certain education and certain political views where borders mean nothing and yeah I think it's problematic if you try and introduce that to the UK where you've got a completely different culture not least because 
there's a massive disconnect between, say, most African-Americans, especially most Hispanic-Americans, many Asian-Americans, and how, you know, they are represented by the American left, right? So it'd be even worse if we adopt the ideas of the American left. But it's interesting with, like, labor and patriotism and stuff, because if you look at, say, a Bernie Sanders rally, right, there are no shortage of American flags. If you look at uh, Jean-Charles de, de uh, Mélenchon rally in France, it literally looks as though he has shagged the flag, which is an accusation often leveled against Keir Starmer. If you look at Mélenchon, he has this whole like uh, tricolor all around him. But he's literally draped in a flag, right? And that's interesting because, okay, France, like Britain, but unlike America, also has this you know imperialist history. France, just like Britain, has this imperialist history, has this history of, uh, you know, racial racial hierarchy and empire building and all the rest of it. And yet, someone like um, Jean-Luc Mélenchon in France has absolutely no problem, who's obviously farther to the left than Keir Starmer, has no problem wrapping himself in the French tricolore. Mm. And the French left are fine with that. So why aren't, you know, why did the British left have such a problem with, with someone like Keir Starmer doing it, is, is an interesting question. Well, why, why do you think that is? Well, it's, I mean, I suppose the sympathetic answer is maybe, maybe, maybe because British patriotism is intertwined with the monarchy and French patriotism, you can have this separate Republican patriotism, which is about maybe the people of France and certain ideals. Well, that's interesting. We've recently just had that debate after the passing of Queen Elizabeth. Some may say we didn't have it. All we did was see a very small dissenting voice from Republicans and a very large, resounding reaffirmation of monarchy. Is that really what's standing in the way? No, I mean, I think that's what people might say, but I don't necessarily think that is the case. I mean, I think historically that that's something that's important to the, ingre- to the ingredients, if you like. I think it's possible to have this left-wing French patriotism, despite their history of empire, despite their history of racial supremacy, because... You know, they have this repu- these Republican values, which they can ostensibly stand for, that they have a national anthem, which isn't about praising the monarch, etc. Having said that, imagine if, 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 if uh, the British monarchy was abolished today or yesterday or tomorrow, right? And we had this elected head of state, whoever the hell it was. I don't think that you would suddenly see the British left reconcile itself to patriotism. I mean, not in a political sense. Which is interesting, and I don't really want to go over the themes of my last book too much, but you know, something you see often on the internet is where like a really left-wing like British or American person would go, I'm the least patriotic person ever. But when someone says shit about our food or our culture, you know, someone's made some ignorant remark about like British food, or they go, oh, I have to stand, you know, I have to say something. I think, what the hell do you think that is, right? What, what do you think that bizarre compulsion that causes you to give a damn that some American has said, uh, you know, an English muffin is a Chelsea bun or whatever the hell, who cares, you know, and you feel the need to speak up on this despite being, quote unquote, the most left-wing person ever. What do you think that is then? Is there maybe a name for that? Anyway. Is there anything in this book that can, in some sense, provide clues as to how we chart a forward path in politics? So much of the stuff that I talk about in the book is the idea that people's demographic or phenotypic or material reality, be that in terms of class or ethnicity or biological sex or age or whatever, is somehow determinative of their cultural political identity. That is going to become so hard to sustain. So hard to sustain because it's clearly absolutely nonsense. If I can challenge that, you know, this machine that is now in motion, it's sustaining entire media careers, entire media organizations. It's become a business in itself. 
when you say it will eventually fizzle out, under what circumstances, under what conditions? Yeah, so I just think that, you know, it's going to be so, I mean, very, very, uh, something I was mentioning before, actually, is this uh, Cold War Steve Photoshop, right? So Cold War Steve, very popular online uh, Photoshopper and, and, and satirist, I suppose. And during the Tory leadership election, he had a very affecting uh, image, which, you know, certainly it, it conveyed a powerful punch whereby he had um, photoshopped Liz Truss and various other white Tory leadership contenders onto a national front rally from the 1970s. And okay, as usual, Cold War Steve, it was, I don't know, nicely done technically and, you know, you could see what the message was. But he had to ignore over half of the other, you know, there was no Rishi Sunak, there was no uh, uh, Suella Braverman, there was no Pretty Patel, there was no Raymond Chisty for a brief time. He was, you know, he, over half of the Tory candidates he had to just edit out because obviously they wouldn't have fit with the message of what he was trying to say. So what are we going to do in the future, right? So like there's this sociologist who died a couple of years ago called Ambalavanar Sivanandan, who's one of the founders of a, a think tank on race whose name I unfortunately forgot. Well, you'll have to repeat the name you just okay, said there. Indeed, yeah. So, I mean, that was, uh, that okay. was, yeah, that was well, something. <laughs> again, this is something that white people like me can do uh, and just roll off the tongue to prove how cool <laughs> and left when we are. So, Ambalavanar uh, Sivanandan. He was from Sri Lanka originally and moved to the UK back in the day many years ago and only died a few years ago. So, Sivanandan had this famous phrase, uh, you know, to explain to sort of white racists in the 60s and 70s, we are here because you were there, right? Because you came to India and Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Jamaica, Nigeria, and you brought all that chaos and did all this and had such exploitation which formed, even if necessarily the British working class didn't feel they were benefiting from at the time, they certainly did. All of that stuff, that's why we're here now. If you want to stop black or brown people being in the UK, you can't go back to 1948 and the Windrush or whatever. You can't go back to 1945. You need to go back hundreds and hundreds of years and you need to stop British people going to you know, the Caribbean and India and so on. We are here because you were there. Fine, interesting. You know, I, I really like the guy's writing. It's going to be very difficult to explain to uh, a black or brown Britain in years to come why a black or brown home secretary like Priti Patel or Suella Braverman can't deport an Albanian cocaine dealer or pimp to Rwanda because you know we were there because you were here whatever so one of the problems is that the left has this old school understanding of these things which is going to become untenable in the future I mean one thing that we are definitely going to see in the next few years and we see the, the, the first shots of it already is we're going to see more and more of a differentiation on the left between people from a an African background, or sorry, African heritage, and people from a Jamaica, sorry, Caribbean or West Indian heritage. We're going to see more and more of a differentiation of people from an Indian Hindu background versus those from a Pakistani or a Bangladeshi Muslim background. Because people from African backgrounds tend to be much more politically conservative, generalizing, of course, than people from a Caribbean background. And likewise, people who are from an Indian Hindu background tend to be much more politically conservative than those from a Muslim, Bangladeshi or Pakistani background. And casting my mind back to a previous conversation with Remy Adekoya, who wrote the book Biracial Britain, we're also going to see mixed race marriages producing mixed race kids, all of whom are going to have a very unique in-between sense of identity. Politics is going to change along those lines too. 100%, yeah, absolutely. I'd like to end this by asking you to recount the story that you tell in the book yeah. about your time as an amanuensis uh -huh. at, at uh, university. It's a nice story. <laughs> yeah, he's a, well, he's, a, he's a nice fella. So I was uh, like in my early 20s 
and I was working at the University of York's Disability Services. And we do various things like amanuensis for people in their exams, no, uh, taking down notes for them, etc. All kinds of stuff. And I work with people who, some of them were deaf or hard of hearing, some of them were blind or visually impaired, etc. Some of them had various kinds of ailments and whatnot. And this one lovely fellow that I worked with for a year, and he was, he acquired blindness, right? So he could see fine until his mid-teens and then he became blind. Now, if that was me, I would not have reacted in the same, you know, optimistic way that he did. But fair, fair play to him, he, he got on with it and he did pretty well for himself. Uh, he got into the England team for, he loved cricket anyway, before he was blind, but he never would have played for England then. So actually, him being blind meant he could get into the England blind cricket team, which is, I mean, blind cricket seems insanely impossible. But there we are. And he had this great guide dog called Vargo. And the guy was also a devout Muslim and a practice, well, practicing Muslim. And in fact, he was from Leicester and he secured a special fatwa from the Leicester Council of Mosques to allow his guide dog Vargo to come into the mosque. A lot of people will hear the word fatwa. It literally means legal ruling, right? right? It means right. legal ruling. Yeah, exactly. So he got a legal ruling because, you know, dogs are not allowed into mosques. And as far as he was aware, and I've looked it up and as far as I was aware, no dog, guide dog or otherwise, had ever been allowed into a UK mosque before this guy's dog was allowed into his mosque in Leicester. So again, so many little things he campaigned for and for, for whatever. Very nice lad. Again, just this bog-standard fellow from Leicester, right? Uh, so his name was Mohammed, and as he would say, it was Mohammed. You know, he had a Leicester accent like Gary Lineker or Jamie Vardy or whatever. You know, Mohammed is what he'd say. Anyway, uh, we, he was doing PPE uh, at the University of York, and one of his philosophy courses he went to uh, was the lecturer was this esteemed uh, philosopher and I've got nothing against her she was a nice woman but every time she called his name she would say Muhammad <laughs> what, Muhammad what do you think she knew how he pronounced his name right because you know she'd ask him what's your name and he'd go oh Muhammad and he go oh, oh Muhammad what do you think about it? so she knew that he did not pronounce his name like this and yet she kept doing it so what was that about, right? And, and one of the, the origin myths of this book, The Identity Myth, was me thinking, what is that about? Clearly, she thinks that there is some kind of kudos or benefit or some advantage to her that people, either Muhammad himself, probably not Muhammad himself, because he never actually used it, but maybe the 90% white, 95% white audience right. would respect her more if she said it like that, right? Presumably, she didn't think he would because he didn't say it that way himself. So why did she keep doing it? Or even not the audience there, but just like the general idea of who she, how she understood herself, that she's the sort of person who has that glottal stuff on Muhammad and stuff. So my point is, I think so many people think there is this certain kudos or credibility or something to be gained from trying to, I don't know, almost like an association with a culture other than themselves. And of course, this can be completely harmless and friendly. It can cause people to try different cuisines and learn different languages and read different books and go to different places. And that's all great. The problem is, I think, is when people assign a certain moral worth to certain cultures, whether it's the so-called white working class or whether it's, uh, you know, Muslims from Leicester or whether it's Spanish football players or whatever the hell it is. When people start to assign a certain moral worth to some cultures more than others and say that some cultures have greater moral worth than other cultures, clearly that is problematic itself. But it's also a problem because it allows charlatans and bad faith actors to associate themselves with it and get some credit for doing it, right? So, for example, if I, in my politics... 
don't give a damn about I don't know black people but I listen to a lot of reggae and jazz and hip hop you know is that okay somehow you know can I can I is that that somehow absolve me or if I'm a conservative MP who consistently votes against I don't know free school meals for working class kids or whatever or things that might actually help the so called white working class and yet I wrap myself in the flag of white working classness and I'm sure to stick an England flag at my window when you know it's a world cup this is the problem it's patronizing and offensive when people assign a certain moral worth to certain cultures in the first place and it's really problematic politically because it allows all kinds of sinister bad-faced actors to take advantage of it dave thanks very much and i'm really glad to see toulouse Lautrec again another <laughs> wonderful evening yeah, another wonderful meal here and i also want to say a big thank you to you for buying one of my prints earlier this year sure did is that hanging up in Israel? Well, it is. We had to briefly take it down. So we on Airbnb, a lot of Russians come to Israel. So we had this family coming when we Should were waiting. Kept it up. We, firstly, we had a Bulgarian family, for Bulgarians, whatever. And then right. we had this people, and we're like, are they Russian or are they Ukrainian? And we couldn't tell. Because if they were Ukrainian, we thought they'd love it. If Russian, not so much. So unfortunately, we had to take it down. But now it's back up pride of place. Another congratulations for getting married in hard times. Nice <laughs> one. It was difficult, <laughs> but we got there in the end. All right, cheers, Jack. Take nice care. One. Until next time. Much appreciated. Mm-hmm.